It's great to be back. Um, for those who don't know, uh, I was gone for the last two weeks because of Malawi missions. I came back a little earlier because of a prior commitment, but our team stayed the full two weeks, and they actually just came back yesterday, so it was great to meet them at LAX, welcome them back. Uh, they caught a bad bug on the last few days of the trip, so some of them are not here. They're just recovering. Uh, let's pray for them, uh, but so excited uh, to have uh, them back here safe, and we're going to be hearing from them in a few weeks. So I'm looking forward to having kind of like a testimony Sunday. We're going to have a short word from me and then have them come up here and share testimonies on the mission. So looking forward to that. Um, before the Word of God, I also wanted to just give a few uh, shout-outs, a few thanks to some people who were really just critical in keeping the church moving forward while we were gone. Uh, but Sam Anik, thank you so much. I don't know, where are you, Sam? Right there. <laughs> but thank you so much for uh, sharing the Word. I don't know when we started applauding <laughs> for people serving the Lord, but praise God. But thank you, Brother Sam, for uh, sharing the Word. Um, and it was his first time. So praise God, and I heard it was a great blessing, so thank you for that. I uh, wanted to also thank uh, Zach Park as well. He's always so faithful in serving the church whenever we need him. Um, thank you for Max. Where's Max? I don't know. Max went away. There he is. <laughs> but thank you so much, Brother Max, for leading worship three weeks in a row. Uh, he's a very busy resident, so he took a lot of time out of his schedule to lead the church and to worship every Sunday. Um, and then a bunch of people were gone who normally head up ministries on Sundays, and they were filled by a bunch of people. So I can't name all of them, but people like Anson heading up uh, AV and doing announcements, people taking uh, charge of the welcoming, uh, setup, breakdown, all these people. Thank you so much. And then, of course, the leaders of the church who kept everything going while we were gone. So praise God, the church goes on even when I'm not here. I am not necessary, but I'm glad to be here. Amen? Okay, well, why don't we open up our Bibles to Revelation 3, 1 through 6. And we're going to get right into the Word of God today. But Revelation 3, 1 through 6. And if you're joining us here in person, you'll see it up on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, you'll see it on your screen at home. But Revelation 3, 1 through 6. This is God's word. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will know, not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory, we give you all the praise, and we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word, and we thank you so much for your faithfulness for these last few weeks. While people were going away and people were coming in and out, Lord, you have been faithful over your church. We thank you, Father God, for the ministry that took place here. 
We thank you for the ministry that took place in Malawi. We thank you, Lord, the ministry that's going to take place today. And we know that you are constantly ministering to your church. So we give you all the praise and all the glory. Lord God, truly, this is your church. Please speak. Hide me behind your presence, behind your word. Father, open our hearts wide to receive. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And we also want to remember the Malawi team, Father, as they have come home now. Lord God, help them to recover. Help them to get well soon for those who are sick. Uh, help them to process everything and share now with the rest of us. We want to hear everything you've done. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well today we're going to be picking up right where I left off the last time I was here, which is Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at Jesus' fifth letter to the church at Sardis. And I just want to remind you guys why Jesus was sending these letters. But it's because Jesus is the head of the church, amen? And Jesus is in the midst of his church, and he's constantly ministering, reaching out to his church. That's everything that is described in chapter 1. But Jesus is all in when it comes to his church. But if you think about it, any head of any organization would care about their organization, right? Imagine Elon Musk. But if he were to go away on vacation, I mean, would he just suddenly forget about Tesla? I don't think so. I think his mind is always going to be on Tesla. And if there was any problem that would arise within that company, I mean, he would radically focus on solving that problem. Well, that's true for one mere man and his car company. Imagine how much more true it is with the Son of God and his bride, the church, that he not only started, but he paid for it with his blood. Jesus is all in when it comes to his church. So Jesus is in the midst of his church. He is constantly reaching out to his church. And so this is why he wrote these letters. And when Jesus was writing these letters, his concern was to build up the church, to encourage the church, maybe correct the church, even rebuke the church, and if he had to, even judge the church. But his goal was never to condemn the church. But it was always to bring the church back to fullness of life. And I want to really emphasize that today. But Jesus' goal is always to bring the church from death to life. Yet whatever that was struggling, whatever problems were in the church, he wanted to solve those problems and bring them to fullness of life. So today, when you look at the letter to Sardis, this is exactly what he was going after. Okay, this is his purpose. But he sent the letter to the church at Sardis because they were spiritually dead. And he cared deeply for this church, and he wanted to bring them to fullness of life. But this is what he was focused on. He said, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Okay, you're dead. I know that kind of sounds harsh to our ears. I mean, who wants to hear somebody come to this church and say, you're dead. <laughs> Promise yours, you're dead. If a guest speaker came here and said that, I don't know if I would invite him back. But this is what Jesus said to this church. You're dead. But again, his goal wasn't to condemn them, but it was to bring them back to life. See, Jesus himself had died and come back to life. So he knew that he was the only one who could bring death to life. So this is Jesus' goal. I believe this is why John said in verse 1, or this is what Jesus said about himself. He said, these are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God. 
Okay, that title, the seven spirits of God, I believe that refers to the Holy Spirit. You know, when you look at the Old Testament, oftentimes the Holy Spirit is connected to the number seven. Okay, that happened in Zechariah 4. But in Zechariah 4, there's this picture of the Holy Spirit represented by the lampstand. And on this lampstand are seven other small lamps that are burning with oil. There's a name for it that the Jewish people have. It's called the menorah. But during uh, Hanukkah, they light the menorah. But that's what Zechariah 4 is talking about. And what is that representing? It's the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is oftentimes represented by the number seven. And I believe that this is the same reference here. Okay, the seven spirits of God is the Holy Spirit. So what is Jesus saying about himself? I believe this is what he's saying. This letter, Sardis, is coming from me who has the spirit of God. This is the same spirit who could bring dead things to life. Okay, this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus said in John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. See, everything about this letter is focused on Jesus bringing death things to life. He's saying, I'm the only one who could bring you back to life. And so this is Jesus' title for, him, for himself. And by the way, this is true not only for churches but individuals. So today, if you're here at church and you're feeling spiritually dead, you haven't had that passion for God, that zeal for God, Jesus is your only hope. Okay? Jesus is the only one who could bring you from death to life. You don't need a program. You don't need a retreat. You don't even need a missions trip. But what you need is Jesus. The only reason those other things can help is if they lead you to Jesus. But Jesus is the only one who could bring you from death to life. So this is what he's saying here. Okay, he's, only, he's the only one who can do this. He has the seven spirits of God. But not only that, he's saying, I'm the only one with the authority to bring the church back to life. And judge the church if they don't repent. But I'm the only one with the authority. I believe this is what he means by the seven stars in his hand. I believe that's pointing to the authority that he has. Those seven stars are either seven angels over the church or seven pastors overseeing the church. Either way, what he's saying is, I'm in control of them. I control them. In other words, I control the church. Not the angels or even the pastors, but I am in control. So right from the beginning of the letter, do you see this? This is a very powerful picture of Jesus. He says, I'm the only one who could bring a dead church back to life. I have the seven spirits of God. I have the Holy Spirit, the spirit of life. And I'm the only one who is in total control of this church. So even a church that's about to die, I'm in control. I could bring it back to life. I have the seven stars, the seven pastors, or the seven angels over the church in my hand. So very strong picture of Jesus. And this picture had to be strong. Why? Because this church was spiritually dead. So extreme conditions require extreme measures. Jesus came out strong. So today what I want to do is look at what Jesus had to say about this church or say to this church. And I really believe it's important that we understand what Jesus says. Because the church at Sardis, I believe, are like churches today. They're like churches today. You know, I've been saying this for the last several weeks. But when you read the book of Revelation, the very first part, the seven churches we read about, they're not just historic churches. They were. But they also represent churches throughout history, especially churches today. And so now when we get to the church at Sardis, 
It represents churches today. I really believe that. But a few weeks ago, I talked about how the Church of Pergamon really represents the evangelical church today. But I believe that. But the Church of Pergamum was the compromised church. They had a lot of pressure from the outside, and so they compromised. I think that's exactly the evangelical church today. I mean, think about all the different ways that the church is looking like the outside culture. But that's the church today. And if nothing changes, then I said three weeks ago or two weeks ago that the next step down is Thyatara. That the evangelical church will become like Thyatara, which was a deceived church. Not because of pressures from the outside, but because of false teachers on the inside. And we're beginning to see that more and more. You hop onto YouTube and just type out deceived church. And then you'll see all these examples of churches today that are being deceived by false teachers. Well, here's one more step down. If nothing changes for the evangelical church today, I believe the next step down is the church at Sardis, which is the dead church, the spiritually dead church. Yeah, I don't think churches today are there yet, but this is where it's headed if nothing changes. But there are other churches in the West who are examples of what dead churches look like. So even though evangelical churches aren't there yet, I think there are other churches today that are already there. And I think one of the clearest examples are the mainline churches. I don't know if you guys have ever been to a mainline church. I think Jill and I, we actually got married at a mainline church. But mainline churches today, and when I say mainline, what I mean are the old denominations that have deep historical roots in the Protestant Reformation. I'm talking about the mainline Episcopal church, the mainline Presbyterian church, the mainline Baptist church, the mainline United Methodist church, Lutheran church. I'm talking about the churches that have these deep historical roots way back in the Protestant Reformation. These churches, and no doubt there are sincere believers in these churches, even some good leaders, but by and large, I believe these churches are dead today. They're dead or they're dying. I remember reading one report that said the mainline Presbyterian church, for example, had 4.25 million members back in 1965. Okay, over 4 million members. By 2000, that number dropped to 2.5 million. By 2020, just a few years ago, that number dropped even more to 1.25 million. Okay, that's only a fourth of what they used to be. And their numbers are dropping even more. And during that same time, other denominations like the Assemblies of God, Southern Baptists, non-denominational churches, they're exploding, right? So what's the problem with mainline churches? Well, it's not that their pastors weren't wearing skinny jeans, right? But their problem is that they became secular. They became secular in their theology. But they rejected the inerrancy of Scripture. They rejected biblical teachings on miracles, the bodily resurrection of Christ, they turned the gospel of eternal salvation into the gospel of social justice. They just started focusing all about doing good works here in this world, in this earth. And so these are the reasons why they started dying. And so this is just one example of how churches can become spiritually dead. And again, if evangelical churches do nothing, I believe this is where it's headed. Okay, there are examples everywhere. You see mainline Churches dying in every city and every uh, state in America today. So the church today needs to hear what Jesus has to say to the church of Sardis. Okay, this is my point. 
And even if you go to a church that's spiritually alive, okay, even if you go to a church that still believes in the gospel, that still is filled with the Holy Spirit, maybe you're spiritually dead. Okay, maybe you're not doing well spiritually. So you need to hear the words that Jesus has to say. So we need to hear what Jesus has to say in this letter. And there are several things that he talks about. But he talks about the diagnosis of spiritual death. And then he talks about the remedy for spiritual death. And then finally, the people of eternal life. The people of eternal life. So first, the diagnosis of spiritual death. Okay, look at Revelation 3, verse 1. Okay, Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Okay, notice right there that Jesus, he doesn't start with commending the church. What I mean is he doesn't start by saying something good about the church, which he did to every church up until now. And the reason why is because I think there's nothing good to say about this church. Another reason is when things are starting to get very serious, I mean, you just get right to the point. So, for example, if you're a doctor and you have to tell your patient that they only have six weeks to live, I mean, you're not going to be talking about this and that. You just get straight to the point. And so here, Jesus gets straight to the point. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. People consider you a real church. They call you Christians. But you're dead. You're dead. But how did this happen, right? How did the church at Sardis become dead? Okay, what kind of a church was it that produced this kind of death? And so this is really important to understand if we're going to understand Jesus' diagnosis. Well, the church of Sardis was in the city of Sardis. And so you need to understand a little bit about the city if you're going to understand the church, because I think they're connected. But the city of Sardis was the capital of the empire of Lydia, and the king of that empire was Croesus. And history tells us that Croesus was famous for pretty much one thing, being wealthy. He was incredibly wealthy. In fact, he was so wealthy, his name made it into slang today in the English language. And this is kind of an older slang, so you might, have, might not know it, but people used to say as rich as Croesus. Have you guys heard that before? But they would say so-and-so is as rich as Croesus. Have you seen his mansion and his Lambo? He's as rich as Croesus. No? You don't know that? Okay, that's fine. <laughs> I've heard it before. Maybe I'm old enough. But there's a saying, as rich as Croesus. That's what they're talking about. And that Croesus is the king of Sardis. He was the king over this city. And he was known for his legendary wealth. And because he was so wealthy... You can assume this city was incredibly wealthy, and it was. It was a very wealthy city. And because it was so wealthy, the city had become very lax, very careless. And this carelessness was perfectly illustrated by how it was defeated, not once, but twice. But history tells us something else about this city. But basically, when it was attacked and taken over, it wasn't because its defenses were weak, the other enemy was so strong, but the reason why is because they were totally careless. Because Sardis, the city, was built on this high hill. It had sheer cliffs on three sides, and there was only one way to get to the city on one side. And yet, the enemy was able to climb up the steep hill and just walk into the city and capture it. Why? Because this city was so careless, so lax, it forgot to put guards up 
on the walls to watch the hill <laughs> to make sure that nobody would climb up. And so that happened not once, but twice. So the enemy just climbed in and took the city. And so this city was extremely wealthy, and because of that, it was extremely careless. It was defeated not from the outside, but it was defeated because it was decaying on the inside. Okay, so this is all important. This is the city of Sardis. So it was careless, and that carelessness pointed to deeper problems in the city, like immorality, lack of purpose. Okay, they were just living for themselves. And so here's the point. The church at Sardis reflected the church, the city of Sardis. Okay, the church at Sardis was a reflection of the city of Sardis. So like the city, the church was also very wealthy. And like the city, the church was also careless. It had grown careless and lax. And like the city, the church was also immoral. So it was not watchful. It was not zealous. It was not holding on to what God had given them, the gospel, the truth, the word of God. In other words, the church was no longer standing for anything. Not even God. It was just living for itself. And this is why the church was dead. Okay, so this is why Jesus came and said, you are dead. And this is probably why the church of Sardis was one of the only churches in these letters that was not being persecuted. Okay, it was not being persecuted. All the other churches we've read up until now, they were persecuted. But the church of Sardis, nobody cared. Okay, the Romans left them alone. The Jews left them alone. And that shouldn't surprise us. Because if you stand for nothing, if you're just living for yourself, right? If you look just like the world, you go to work and you talk just like everybody there. Okay, you love all the same things everybody loves there. Okay, you go to school, you meet the neighbors around you, and you are just like them. Who's going to persecute you? Nobody. Okay, you stand for nothing. You live for yourself. Everybody will leave you alone. And so that was the church at Sardis. The Romans left them alone. The Jews left them alone. The pagans left them alone. Nobody cared for this church. They left them alone. And so this was the church at Sardis. They were spiritually dead. And they were not unique, right? Again, this church represents churches throughout history. But many churches throughout history have been dead, just like this church. You know, if you, were go to, if you were to go to the church office right now, I have a book on the shelf called The Autopsy of a Deceased Church. And this was written by a church consultant, and basically he studied churches for over 25 years, and many of these churches were dead churches. He studied them. And he wanted to know, he asked a very interesting question, but what makes a church dead? What are the signs of a dead church? So he compiled it all together after studying it, and he wrote a book. But this is what he found out. He came up with a list of things that causes a church to die. And this is not the actual list. This is just a summary, but this is what he said. A dead church has become self-centered and inward-focused. A dead church rarely prays. A dead church neglects the Great Commission. A dead church tolerates sin. And finally, a dead church becomes worldly. This was his conclusion after studying churches for 25 years. These are the marks of a dead church. This is what makes a church dead. And I believe when you look at the church at Sardis, they exemplified all of them. All of those things marked that church. They were a dead church. But especially that last one, worldliness. I think this is what defined the church at Sardis. Why do I say that? Because of the city that they lived in. 
Again, think about the city of Sardis. Very wealthy. He totally self-indulgent, self-centered. Everybody left them alone. The few times they were conquered is because they were completely careless. I mean, this was the church as well. They were worldly to the core. And this is what killed them. And again, this is churches today. This is what's killing churches today. But why, right? Well, why does worldliness kill churches? Why is this so deadly? And everything I can say about the church can, can be applied to individuals. Why does worldliness kill individual Christians as well, spiritually? Okay, well, why is worldliness so deadly? Well, I want to look a little bit deeper into this so that we can see the diagnosis of spiritual death. Well, what is worldliness? Well, worldliness is having the same beliefs, values, and desires as the world. Okay, that is worldliness. And when I say world, I'm not talking about the creative physical world. So I'm not talking about Yosemite. Okay, I'm not talking about the world of people. So I'm not talking about all the people who live in your apartment complex. Okay, that is not the world we're talking about. But I'm talking about the world system. The world system. This is how John repeatedly uses the word world in his letter, 1 John. This is how Paul uses the word world repeatedly in his letters. They're talking about the world system. It is the system of beliefs, values, and desires. Okay, I'm being very intentional with those three words. Okay, what they believe and teach. Okay, what they value. You could even say what they worship more than anything. And what they desire, their appetites. Okay, the things that they just want. And they got to fill themselves with these things, right? Their beliefs, values, and desires. And this entire system. Because there are institutions that embody these things, right? And they promote these things. So it's an entire system. So it's an entire system of beliefs, values, and desires that go against the word of God. That's the world. And so whether it's a social system, economic system, political system, these are systems that embody all of these things. Again, beliefs, values, and desires that directly contradict the word of God. Here's another way to put it. They fall short of God's will. They miss the mark. And where have you heard that before? That's the definition of sin. That's the Bible's definition of sin. Sin is missing the mark. And so all these things that the world system is about, they believe they're good, right? And in some areas, I mean, you, you might say, yeah, I mean, they're, they're okay, they're good. But on the whole, they are missing the mark of God's will. And so what is it? It is a sinful system. So the entire world system is a sinful system because it misses the mark of God's holy will. And this is why it brings death. Because in the Bible, sin always produces what? Death. Okay, anytime you talk about spiritual death, you have to talk about sin because that's where death comes from. If you look at Ephesians 2, 1 and 3, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Okay, very clear. Why are people spiritually dead? Because of sin. What produces spiritual death? Sin. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. See that connection? Where, where did this sin come from that produces death? You following the course of the world. It come, comes from this world system. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
So there Paul talks a lot about what we just heard. But it is the world system that is producing all this sin that you also accepted and now you have died because of it. This world system with all these sinful desires and the values and the beliefs that it promotes. You have accepted all of that and because of that you have died. So Paul is saying we have all died in sin. We are all dead in sin. And again, that death came because of the world system. So this is why repeatedly in the New Testament we see warnings against the world system. So listen to 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world. Again, we're not talking about Yosemite. (laughs) We're talking about the world system. Do not love the world system or the things in the world system. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What does that mean? If anyone loves the world, what the world system teaches, values, they desire, those are all the same things you believe, you value, you desire. John says, basically, you're not a Christian. It just, just very bluntly, God the Father is not in you. You are not a believer. You are not a Christian. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions, the lust of having, the lust of being, the lust of doing, that's what he's talking about is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, this world system, is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And right there when John says the world system is passing away, one reason I think he says that is because dead things pass away. If you were to see a dead flower on the ground, that flower is passing away. Dead things pass away. And even if something is still alive, but it has death in it, let's say an illness, that will bring death, it is passing away. And this is why the world system is passing away, like a dead corpse, because there is death in it. So this world system has missed the mark. It is a sinful system. And anything that has sin is dying or is dead. And this is why the world system is passing away. But this world system is more than just like a dead corpse. It's like, ooh, let's just avoid that. But this world system is actually more like the walking dead. And it's coming at us. It is at war with us. So what do I mean? What I mean is, number one, the world system is calibrated to tempt your fallen nature. This is how Satan has set it up. Because Satan is the ruler of this world system. But he has calibrated it to tempt our fallen nature. Because he knows our fallen nature is perfectly at home with the world system. See, non-Christians, this is why they are so happy in the world and they have no reason to leave the world. They have no reason to come to church and deny the world and deny themselves. It's because they're perfectly happy there. And so the enemy knows that. And so even for believers, we have the fallen nature within us still. He knows the world system is perfectly calibrated to tempt our fallen nature. So every single day, you go out there and you're like driving and you see a billboard. Why, why is it that your eyes just immediately go there? It's calibrated to tempt you. Wow, that car looks amazing. Again, nothing wrong with cars. I have a car. All of you guys mostly have cars, right? But it's like, whoa, maybe I need a new car. You know, you're surfing online and suddenly, my God, my gosh, Prime has an, a, an annual sale today, right? It's like, why are they always having these sales? I got to buy all these like Tupperware. Like, wh- why, right? It's perfectly calibrated to tempt your flesh. Those are more the innocent temptations. I mean, they're far worse, right? 
But that's how Satan has set it up. But not only that, number two, the world is constantly trying to disciple you into its mold in new ways. So there are already things in you that you're already tempted by in the world, but there are also new things you don't even have yet within you that the world system is trying to disciple you into. Paul says that in Romans 12.2, do not be conformed. Another translation says, do not be squeezed into the mold of this world. Why would Paul say that? It's because the world system is trying to squeeze you into its mold. It's trying to disciple you. Again, into what? Its beliefs. It has beliefs about the world, about God, about you, about life. It's got certain beliefs. It's trying to disciple you into that. Its values. It wants you to value the things it values. Yeah, just spend 99.9% .9 of all your income on yourself. What's wrong with that? Blow money on yourself. Take that extra vacation. Buy that thing you don't need. Just blow it all on yourself. I mean, live. You only have one life, right? It's trying to disciple you into these values. The desires, right? All the things that the world is going after. I mean, just, I mean, it's okay. Go after it. It's discipling you into these things. Paul says, do not be conformed. Do not be discipled into its mold of the world. So the Bible is just so clear everywhere. Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities. And for some reason, we kind of always ignore this or we don't really pay attention. But then against also the powers of this dark world. We just focus on the rulers and authorities and these angelic beings. But Paul also says the powers of this dark world. Again, he's talking about the world system. Your struggle is not against just flesh and blood, people around you that you get into conflicts with. But it's against angels and authorities, the enemy, and also this dark world. So this is the world. Okay, this is the world system. It misses the mark of God's will. Which, by the way, is what? Life. Okay, th this message is very easy, brothers and sisters. But God equals life. Sin equals death. And where is sin? In the world system. So the world system equals death. God, life, world system, and sin, death. I mean, that's the essence of today's message. It's very simple. But it misses the mark of God's will, which is life. And that's why the world system embodies death. It embodies death. And so please hear this. But we need to have a radical transformation in the way we see the world. It's kind of like the movie Matrix. I'm not promoting that movie, but I think most of us have already seen it, so I'm going to just use it, right? But it's like the movie Matrix. But in that movie, basically, it's all about people in that movie struggling to see the world for what it really is. An evil, computer-generated matrix, right? The whole movie is about that. Freeing people's minds to see what the world really is. Well, in the same way, the believer's struggle, if you read the New Testament, is to see the world for what it truly is. So we need to have a radical shift in our perspective. And what is the world? Again, it is a system that embodies sin and therefore produces death. So most of us here, I think we kind of know the world system is sinful. We know that. Christians shouldn't really get involved in that too much. A little bit, but not too much. But I don't think we understand it embodies death. That, that is what we bring into our lives when we bring the world system into our lives. So the world is not only against Christianity, it is against life. You need to understand that. That is the new perspective you need to have. The world system is against life. 
the life that God is giving you, the life that God has given you. So what do I mean? What I mean is any belief, any value, any desire from the world system comes directly against human flourishing and God's life that he has given you. But it comes directly against that. Even if it looks like on the surface that it's flourishing you. It's bringing you life in the beginning. Even though it looks like it's good. Again, going back to that matrix example, I mean the matrix is good. A lot of people just want to live there. But ultimately, we see it for what it is. No, it's embodying death. Ultimately, if you're in that system long enough, if you've accepted enough of their beliefs and values and desires, what looks like life in the beginning begins to produce death. Okay, what I mean is death to human flourishing. Your life doesn't flourish like the way you think it should. Okay, death to knowing God, following God. Okay, how many of you guys feel like, oh, I don't know, I'm not really close to God right now. Well, why is that? Why did that desire die in you? Well, again, it's no mystery. It's because you have accepted the world's desires. And that produces death. And then ultimately, if you stay there long enough, then it leads to physical and eternal death. Ultimately, that proves that you're not a believer at all. It doesn't, I'm not saying you lose your salvation, but that proves that you never were saved to begin with. So this is what the world system always does. It is not only sinful. It's not just against Christianity. It's against life. It's against life. So here's one example. But the right to do whatever I want with my own body. Okay, this is a huge issue right now in the world, in our culture. Okay, this is a powerful so-called right promoted by the world today. It started in the West. It's spreading everywhere. But the right to do whatever I want with my body. And on the surface, doesn't that sound just good? I mean, it, it brings all kinds of freedom and joy, right? I mean, yeah, that just sounds right. It's my body. I could do what I want with my own body, right? And so that leads to just, well, I could just be with whoever I want. I could sleep with whoever I want. I could marry whoever I want. I could become whoever I want. And so there's this fundamental right that people believe that they have. I could just do whatever I want with my own body. And this touches on so many different things, right? Everything from abortion rights to transgender rights to gay marriage rights to sexual freedoms. Okay, all of it seems so liberating, fulfilling, and yet it's thrown the world into total chaos. And we see it. I mean, it's not even something that Christians are pointing out. Even non-Christians, it's like, what is happening to our world? There's just chaos. And here's something that people don't talk about, but there's a quiet wreckage of lives that's being left behind. Okay, that gets never reported on. But when you dig into the real stories of what's really happening, there's a lot of devastation, a lot of wreckage of life. Now, I know those things I mentioned, they're complex issues. I know they're exceptional cases. Okay, I'm not just glossing over all that. I know there are different things going on there. But, but what I'm saying is at its core, okay, at the core of all those things is this belief this value, again, where is it coming from? The world system. It's coming from this world system that says, I have the right to do whatever I want with my body. It's my body. It's my right. And that misses the mark of God's will. Okay, that misses the mark of God's will for human beings. That's not what we read about our bodies in the Bible, in Scripture. It misses the mark, which means it's sinful, which means it embodies death. 
And so again, if you were to look at what is producing in our culture today, it's producing more death than human flourishing. So we need to have a complete new perspective on all this. Again, when you begin to like bring these values into your life, and it's not even like you're consciously bringing them in, they just kind of come into your life, we need to recognize it's not going to bring flourishing, but it's going to bring death. It's not just anti-God, it's anti-life. Okay, this is the world. So the world system with its beliefs, values, and desires, okay, this is what it does. It brings death. You know, the image I get is this one uh, young lady who defected from North Korea. But I remember seeing her on YouTube. And, uh, I think her name is Youngmi Park. But she's been uh, all over the world sharing her testimony. But she escaped North Korea with her mother. She went through hell to leave that country. She eventually made it to South Korea. And now she lives in the U.S. And she speaks on behalf of human rights in North Korea. But she said when she was very young, she just remembers dead bodies everywhere. She lived through the terrible famine of North Korea in the 1990s as a young child. And she said, yeah, she would just walk down the street in a neighborhood and there would just be dead bodies. Not only that, but she said vividly she remembers one time uh, she had a terrible uh, illness in her stomach because dead bodies carry disease. And so she got sick. She had this terrible pain in her stomach. She went to the hospital and she was just shocked. Actually, she didn't say she was shocked. She said she was numb to it. It just seemed normal. But there were piles of dead bodies in the hospital, just where she was waiting, as she was waiting to be seen by a doctor. And these dead bodies just carried all this disease, leading to more sickness and more death. And so why am I sharing this? That's the picture I get. When you embrace worldly beliefs, values, desires, it's like you're bringing a dead body into your life. Okay, that's the perspective. You're bringing a dead body into your house. So imagine that. You open the door, walk into your house, and there are dead bodies laying on your couch. You go into your bedroom, there's a dead body in your bedroom. There are dead bodies in your life, in your family, in your house. Why? Because you have brought all this worldly belief and values and desires into your life, into your home. And they embody death, and before you know it, in a matter of time, that death begins to spread. It begins to spread. And then we wonder, oh, why, why is my passion for God dead? Why do I not, you know, no longer care about the things of God? Well, it's very clear. It's because you have brought dead things into your life, and that death is spreading. And so this is the church as Sardis. It's a very simple message, and yet it needs to be heard, because apparently people haven't gotten the message. Churches today, they have brought the world system into the churches. I shared this the last time I was here, but it's surprising to see churches, even today, they sing secular songs in their worship services. The whole seeker-sensitive movement, what started out as good, we just want people to get saved. right? We're all about seeing people get saved. But then the enemy used that to bring the world's beliefs and the world's values and desires into the church. And that's why there's been an increasing like, cry against the seeker-sensitive movement. It's just brought worldliness into the church. Not only salvations, but worldliness. And the church has died. So the presence of God equals life. The presence of sin through the world system brings death. It brings death. You know, I heard this powerful testimony by David Wilkerson. He's a mighty man of God, already passed away, went to be with the Lord. But David Wilkerson, he's kind of like one of those prophetic type pastors but I remember one time he was just sharing a testimony in one of his sermons. But he said, 
The Lord was working powerfully in his life one time. He went somewhere to speak and he was preaching and the, the Lord was working. And yet when he went back to his motel or hotel that night, he noticed that on the TV, and this had just come out during this time, I think this was like decades ago, but those sexually explicit movies had just come out onto those, these hotel you know, TVs. And so being curious, he just kind of played one. I mean, he was just being very honest and transparent. He was like, I had just preached the gospel, God was moving, and now here I am in my hotel by myself, and I just played one out of curiosity. And he was watching basically this pornographic movie, and then he turned it off because God convicted his heart. Okay, after a few moments, he immediately got convicted. He turned it off. And then he said he went for a walk. I think he was in Kansas at that time, and he said he found a quiet field, an empty field, and he started praying. He was walking. And this is what God told him. But he said, I have anointed you. I have called you. But if you continue in this way, if you believe that, oh, yeah, I can handle this. Yeah, I'm a man of God. I can, I can handle this. But if you continue in this way, then my anointing will leave you, my presence will leave you, and you will be a dead man in the pulpit. Okay, that's exactly what he heard. Those are his words. You will be a dead man in the pulpit. And so what is that? I mean, that's just a personal testimony of what we've been talking about. Sin produces death. And that sin came directly from the world system. I mean, he wasn't looking for that. He wasn't searching it. It was the world trying to disciple him into that. And he got exposed, and God said, if you continue in it, you're going to be a dead man. Okay, what he meant is spiritually. You're going to be a spiritually dead person in the pulpit. And so this is the church at Sardis. Unlike David Wilkerson, he didn't, they didn't heed the warning. Okay, they just continued on. So this is Jesus' warning, and yet Jesus has something much better to say. But he, he told this church that not only is, this, is there this diagnosis of death, but there is also a remedy. Okay, there is a great remedy. But this is what Jesus said. If you go back to the very beginning. Jesus said in chapter 3, verse 2, Wake up! And strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So there Jesus not only diagnoses their illness, which is spiritual death. But he says there's a remedy, church. There's a remedy. And I believe that this church actually heard the warning and they received the remedy and they actually lived on. Because history tells us that later on, about a century or two later, a great apologist, an apologist is somebody who defends the faith, but a great apologist came out of that church and he wrote many writings from the church at Sardis. And so this church continued on. Okay, they came back from death and they came to life. But how? It's because they listened to the remedy that Jesus gave them. And so there are two things that he told them. He said, number one, wake up. And that, that would have been a very convicting cry to this church in this city. Why? Because the city was asleep. And they were conquered twice. And so maybe this church would have been convicted by that. Oh, yeah, we need to wake up. We're kind of known to be asleep. But wake up. Okay, there's something coming against you, so you need to be defensive. Wake up. So there's kind of a defense 
And then he says, remember. Okay, that's kind of an offense. So there's something to protect yourself against, but there's something that you need to be proactive for. So he kind of gives them a remedy. So what is he talking about? Well, it's very simple. Wake up. Right? Know that the world system is crowding around you. It's already within you, your church. And so wake up. It's trying to disciple you. It's trying to tempt you. You've already fallen. In fact, it says here the majority of the church is already asleep, is already fallen. See, the other churches we've looked at, a lot of the people there hadn't fallen. Okay, they were holding strong. But in this church, the majority had fallen. Only a few were walking with God. And so Jesus told the whole church, wake up. Okay, do you know what's coming in? Again, going back to the example of your house, do you see the dead bodies that you've brought into your house? Okay, the beliefs that you're literally passing on? I mean, there are some Christian parents, and maybe sometimes I'm guilty of this, but we literally take dead bodies and give them to our children. Hey, take this. And we actually guide them into it. Right? Yeah, these things in the world, the values, the beliefs, the desires of the world, yeah, here, have some more. But Jesus is saying, wake up. Do you see what's happening? So there's that defensive side, and then he says, but remember. Okay, remember what? What Jesus makes it clear. He says, remember the things that you have received. Okay, what you have received. And heard. So he says, these things keep. And so what he's talking about here is the gospel. Because the gospel is the only thing that can reverse the death. Okay, the gospel is the only thing that could bring Jesus back into our lives. You know, this picture, I've shared it many times before, but it's like the perfect picture, so I keep sharing it. But in Genesis 26, it's the picture of Isaac digging up the wells. Because when Isaac was traveling around the, the promised land, he got to the spot where his father Abraham had first met God, and he built a well there, an altar and a well. And so he got back to that place, and he noticed that the well was plugged up. And the Bible is very clear. The enemy did it. The enemy had plugged up the well. And because he was dying of thirst, his entire family, all his flocks were dying of thirst, he had to dig up that well. And that's the way it is with the church today. we got to dig up the well of the gospel. Okay, if you've been drawn into the world, if these things have started to tempt you and mold you, then we got to say, okay, I'm going to wake up to that, and i got to go back to the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the only thing that can jumpstart your heart again to love Jesus. Okay, the, the gospel is the only thing that can tell you Jesus loves you so much, he died for you. See, the world didn't die for you. Okay, all these values and these beliefs in the world, it doesn't tell you that somebody died for you. The gospel does. Jesus died for you. He loves you that much. So when you truly accept that and believe that, then that jumpstarts your heart. You know, I love this story of the, the Civil War era, but there was this one auction happening where this one slave girl was about to get auctioned off. And apparently, this is the story of Abraham Lincoln. I don't know if this is true or not. But a young Lincoln saw this girl about to get auctioned off, and so he decided, I'm going to buy this girl and buy her freedom. And so he stood there, and he bid for this girl, and then he finally won. And so he bought the girl, and he was going to set her free. And so he told the girl, you're free to go. And the girl said, you mean I'm free to go wherever I want to go? And he's like, yeah, you can go. I'm free to do whatever I want to do? He's like, yeah. You can do whatever you want to do. I'm free to be whoever I want to be. He's like, yeah, you're free. And then the, late, the, the girl, the young girl looked at him and said, well, then I want to be with you. Right? Then I want to go with you. Okay, well, what is that? That's the gospel. 
Okay, well, why do Christians love Jesus and want to follow him? It's because he redeemed us. Okay, we were enslaved in this world system. We were captured, and Jesus redeemed us. And not just by paying some money, but with his very own life. And so now we're like that little slave girl going, I want to be with you. If I'm free and you freed me, I want to be free to go with you. See, that's what the gospel does. We've got to dig that up again, brothers and sisters. And so this is what Jesus is telling the church at Sardis. Wake up. Look at all the dead bodies you've brought into your house. Look at the dead bodies you're passing on to your children. The dead bodies you've carried on, on your back. They're filled with disease and death. Wake up. And go back to the gospel. Go back to life. Amen. I don't know what that is. Praise God. And if you do that, then there's a promise. But we close with this. Jesus says, you will be a part of the people of life. You will have eternal life. And so he says that. But Jesus says in verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, there is a promise, an incredible promise. You will be a part of the people of life. And there, when it talks about the white garments, you see this throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book of Isaiah, but it's talking about the robes of righteousness. So this isn't something you've earned. But this is something that Jesus had. He had the robes of righteousness, and he made an exchange. He took your filthy rags, wore those, and he gave his robe of righteousness to you. That's the robe of righteousness here. He's saying, you will have my robe of righteousness on you. This is not by works. This is by faith, by grace. But you will have the robes of righteousness, and I will never blot your name out of the book of life. And some people read that going, oh, my gosh, I could lose my salvation. My name could be blotted out of the book of life. I like what this one commentator said. He's, he's like, I don't know why people think that when they read this verse, when Jesus said the exact opposite. <laughs> he didn't say, I'm, you could be blotted out. He actually said the exact opposite. I will never blot you out. So don't read these verses thinking, oh my gosh, I could lose my salvation. Jesus is saying the exact opposite. You will never be blotted out of the book of life. But rather, I will confess your name before my father and before his angels. He's saying, you will have eternal life. You will have eternal life. If you will overcome this worldliness, right? If you will wake up and you will turn to the gospel and believe again in me, then you will have eternal life. This is his great promise. You will be a part of the people of life. And it's so true. It's so true. When you embrace what Jesus has done for you and you live for that, there is life. And I come to a close with this, but, you know, I just came back from Malawi and I had an amazing time there. But for one week, and I wish I would have stayed there for the full two weeks. I had to come back for a wedding. It was a good reason to come back for it. But, but during the seven days that I was there, six days, seven days. But I remember, because we were just so focused every single day. You wake up, you do your quiet time, you're thinking about Jesus, you're thinking about serving him, you're thinking about, like, sharing Jesus. I mean, that's all you're thinking about, serving him. I mean, I just felt alive the whole time. And you'll hear testimonies from the people when they come back. Um, some, of, some of them are here today. But in a few weeks, you'll hear their testimony. But they were also just so happy. I remember telling somebody that. I was like, your husband was so happy during this mission trip. But he was. They were all so happy. Why? It's because we just had this life in us, right? We just had this life. 
Every single morning, we would wake up, and yeah, we're tired. Yeah, we had headaches and different issues. Some of them even got sick. But the deeper problems, right, the deeper things that just weigh us down and that just depress us, they were gone. They were gone. At least for me, seven days straight, I'm just like, this is so amazing. I love being here. I was so filled with joy. What is that? That is life. We were among the people of life, serving the God of life. For those brief moments, we had some of those dead bodies that we carry around off. Okay, they weren't in our life. And so I desire that for the whole church, and I hope you're going to be encouraged as you hear some of that from the Malawi team. But this is Jesus' promise to the start of the church. Amen? Okay, let's just, let's just come before the Lord right now. Let's bow our heads. But God is so good. Okay, God, God wants you to have life. God does not want you to have death. Change your perspective. Change your perspective. The things that you see all around you in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the possessions, the pride in possessions, They're not just things that Christians shouldn't really get involved in. That's how most Christians see it. Oh yeah, these are things that we shouldn't really get involved in that much. But have a radical shift in your perspective. These things, these apparently innocent looking things, they embody death. death and if you don't believe me go for it okay go for it and in about 10 years you tell me how it went did it bring you life or did it bring you more death I already know the answer because the word of God tells me you will have more death in your life so Lord God please please transform our thinking please renew our minds We just come before you, Father God. We thank you. Let's just spend a few moments as we do every Sunday. Uh, We spend a few moments before the Lord, responding to the word. Let's just come before him right now. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Mm